So this week we're going to be dealing with the duplication and circulation and collection of all the New Testament books and how they were formed into a canon of inspired scriptures for us. We're about halfway through the series of studies on apostolic canonization. This series of lessons, of course, is affirming that all 27 books of our New Testament were written, collected, and certified as authoritative by the apostles before they passed from the earthly scene in AD 70. What we are affirming here is that the apostles were the only ones who had the inspiration and authority to not only write inspired scripture, but also to infallibly decide which books were authoritative. No later generation after the apostles has been given that inspiration, nor have they been given the paraclete's direct guidance and empowerment, nor have they been given the direct commission and authorization of Christ to produce the canon. Later churchmen were not inerrant, nor were they eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. This means that the only Christians who were ever qualified to set the boundaries of the New Testament canon were those very apostles who wrote the inspired books in the first place. We call this idea apostolic canonization. There are three steps in the process of creating a, a canon of Scripture. Of course, that's writing, collecting them, and then certifying them. And all three steps are inseparably linked. The twelve apostles were commissioned by Christ if you want to see this, you want to go to the Gospel of John, chapters 12 through 16. The twelve apostles were commissioned by Christ to perform all three of these steps, write them, collect them, and certify them. None of these three steps would be left to a later generation to finish the job. If we allow later generations the right to collect and certify the canon, we have not only stripped the inspired apostles of their Christ-commissioned work, but we've put it into the hands of uninspired churchmen who are not able and not authorized to do it. The inspired and empowered apostles were the only ones authorized and enabled to do all three of those tasks. This is why the Catholic Church got off track so far and so fast. They failed to realize that the apostolic authority was not successively passed down to each new generation of head bishops of the Roman Church, but instead it ceased to be given to any later generations after the apostles, because it had only been given to the apostles for that first generation of the church, and their authority was equally vested in both their spoken and written words. When you become a preterist, you're forced into the position of saying that the New Testament books had to be written before 70, all 27. And all the dilemmas begin to pop into perspective at that point. Because when you say they're all written before 70, that forces you to think about the canonization process. And that's where preterists, I think, are in a really good position to understand this and help the rest of the church. Because the Protestant Reformation laid the groundwork for apostolic canonization, but they never really finished the job. 
it's only the preterist who can finish the job and do a consistent job of it in order to answer the Catholic Church because the Protestants just never were consistent. And the Catholics have taken advantage of, of that inconsistency all these years. So preterists are the ones who can finally nail this down. And the position that I'm teaching here in this series of studies is, I believe, the only consistent position that a Protestant or a preterist can take. I'm hoping that our listeners will get the points that we're making here because they're very important when it comes to biblical authority and the canonization process. So only those inspired men who had the authority from Christ to write the books in the first place had the authority from the paraclete to collect them and put their stamp of authenticity and authority upon them. You know, evangelical Christians affirm that the first century apostles and prophets were inspired and their writings were canonical, but for some reason, most Protestants and most evangelical Christians don't take the next logical step to conclude that only those who had inspiration are also the only ones who can infallibly decide which books are canonical. You'd think we have figured that out a long time ago. It shouldn't take a preterist to figure that out. That's the inconsistency that the Roman Catholic Church has taken advantage of all these years. It's about time we figured that out and, and got on with it. We have gullibly fallen for the Romanist idea that uninspired churchmen of later centuries are somehow able and authorized to make those canonical decisions. We fall for this idea also because we do not realize that the apostles accomplished the collection and certification of the canon before they left the earthly scene. Now, that's what we're going to look at tonight is the fact that the apostles themselves accomplished that collection and certification of the canon before they left the earthly scene. The possibility just never seems to occur to futurist Christians, that later uninspired men cannot give us a canon. And so if the inspired apostles didn't give it to us, then we're never going to have it because uninspired men later cannot give it to us. And that's a point we've really got to burn in our memory. And that's where I believe the preterist has a huge advantage over the futurist. And, and you know what? You know, when you, when you brought up earlier the Catholic Church, uh, kind of a little interesting side story yesterday— there was a gentleman that is a Roman Catholic, and he's been listening to their broadcast for at least the last few weeks, and he's been, really been enjoying it. But then it's like yesterday, the guy was like, well, wait a sec. I, I get what they're saying, but that would mean that the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church has been wrong for 2,000 years. And the guy was yeah. really struggling with that because he goes, look, what you guys are saying makes sense, but I have a problem with 2,000 years of church history being wrong. And so, uh, you know, these are, these are, again, things that we need to quite literally put upon the altar of God and be willing to sacrifice them and say, okay, God, where is it that you're leading me? Where is it that, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is taking me that, you know, that I'm, I may not be comfortable with this? If there's any listeners uh, to this that are coming from a Roman Catholic point of view, I would like to reassure them that the Roman Catholic Church was not wrong on the essential doctrines of our faith for 2,000 years. Now, they were wrong on some matters of eschatology, which are non-essentials for our faith, but they were not wrong on any of the essentials of our faith. And we need to constantly, you know, reaffirm as preterists that 
uh, we're not challenging the essentials, the doctrines that make up our faith. You know, the the inspiration of Scripture we agree with. You know, the the Trinity, the deity of Christ, all those essentials that make up our faith. We're right in sync with the uh, Roman Catholic Church as well as uh, all the Protestant denominations. It's those non-essential areas like eschatology. And and the Roman Catholic Church never made eschatology an essential for salvation. And never. Neither did the Reformed guys 500 years ago when the Protestant Reformation occurred. None of them made eschatology an essential for salvation. In fact, Calvin and Luther never even wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation because they they didn't know what it was talking about. The Catholics and the Protestants both left eschatology in the realm of non-essentials. So we need to reassure any folks who are disturbed by the differences here that, uh, yeah, yeah, we're definitely... Uh, saying that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong, but but not wrong on any essential doctrines. They were wrong only on those matters of opinion about eschatology in the realm of non-essentials. So we want to look at the uh, second step of this uh, canonization process. The first step, of course, is writing the document, and then the second step is collecting them, and then the third step is putting uh, an apostolic uh, certification on top of those books. New Testament uh, refers to it as simply being inspired or uh, being considered as scripture. That's the way it uses canonical language. Today in the, the modern Reformation, we refer to it as canonical, but in the first century they looked at it as being inspired or being authoritative or being scripture. So, were the New Testament books widely circulated and collected before A.D. 70? That's what the apostolic canonization theory teaches. And that's what I'm affirming here, and that's what the burden of proof resting upon me is to show that those New Testament books, all 27 of them, uh, were widely circulated and collected before A.D. 70. The book of Acts, and especially Paul's epistles tell us a lot of information about this circulation and collection. So we don't have to go out to external historical traditions very much. Uh, we can see that uh, just by reading the book of Acts itself, and Paul's epistles uh, show us a lot about that. Notice what Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae in Colossians 4, verse 16. He says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming to you from Laodicea. Now, that's interesting. And, of course, all the theologians in the world have speculated on whether or not there's another book written by Paul to the church at Laodicea that we don't have in our canon. And one of these days we're going to find it and add a 28th book to our New Testament canon. This probably was the book of Ephesians, which we already have. Now, the point we need to see from this passage, though, where he talks about the letter from Laodicea coming to them to read it in their church, this tells us something about the way letters circulated in the first century church. Not only did churches like Colossae and Laodicea share copies of their collected writings, but the apostles themselves carried copies of those 
apostolic books with them wherever they went. And we noticed in past times that Paul himself mentions his collection of books and parchments. And uh, Peter also talks about the fact that that he had seen and was aware of and evidently uh, had in his possession all of Paul's writings. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this lesson. So the scribes of those churches copied those manuscripts whenever the apostles were with them so that after the apostles went on to the next city, they would have those books to refer to for guidance and for reading in their public worship services after the apostle had already gone to another city. So it's a very important thing back in those days. They didn't have copy machines. What they did have was a scriptorium where they could put the the original scroll, what they call the exemplar, over on the left side or up above, they would not touch it with their hands. They'd use a little pointing tool to to point to the, the spot that they're copying, and then they would copy down below or to the right-hand side. That's how they copied those manuscripts. And that's why Apostle Paul stayed at some of those cities for several weeks and several months because uh, it took some time for those scribes to hand-copy those manuscripts before he moved on to another city. Evidence for the wide circulation of these documents through the apostolic couriers, and that's another way that they were circulated, not just by the apostles themselves. Uh, For instance, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was a courier for Peter. And evidently, later in Paul's life, uh, he used the services of Mark as well, because uh, when Paul was in prison the second time, he says, be sure and bring Mark with you because he's useful to me for service. And A lot of commentators speculate that that was a courier service that he was performing for Peter and Paul. Uh, But evidence for the wide circulation of these documents through the apostolic couriers can be found in the colophons and databirds. These are technical terms in textual criticism. What the colophons and databirds are is literary and artistic elements on the, uh, the manuscript itself that are used by the authors to inform the readers of several facts about the book, who wrote the book, when it was written, where it was written, and under whose authority it was produced or sent out. And so those are important things to have. And what's interesting is that in the first century and second centuries, when the church was under persecution, they would hide that information in artistic elements. The embellishments around the edges and borders of the page would have these uh, artistic designs. And if you looked closely in those designs, you would find the information of who wrote the book, when it was written, and where it was written, and who sent it out, etc. So very interesting stuff. And after the church was freed up from Roman persecution, they didn't have to hide that information any longer. In those first two or three centuries documents, you have to look in the, the artistic elements on the side of the page to find out the authorship and date of those writings. That's what helps us understand how those books were circulated, where they came from, where they were written, when they were written, when they were sent out. And it's very important that we understand that information because uh, it helps us see the inspiration and authority of these texts. These literary and artistic devices imply a wide circulation of the books wherever the apostles and their couriers traveled. 
the apostles and Peter especially would have maintained a complete certified collection of all these writings at the mother church in Jerusalem. And we're going to see more evidence for that as we go through this lesson. Paul had a collection of books and parchments that he carried with him on his missionary journeys. He mentions it in his second letter to Timothy. And notice this is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, speaking to Timothy here. He says, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchment. The word books there is biblia in the Greek, and it means scrolls. That's the way it was used most of the time, was for scrolls. And the word parchments there could be a parchment scroll, and it was certainly used that way a lot of the time, but it was also used for parchment codexes or books, bound volumes. And they'd put a bunch of loose-leaf parchment sheets together and bind them between two wooden covers, and that was, a, that was called a codex, and it was the first bound books and of course we we don't use wood today on our covers we uh, we use cardboard cardboard is made out of wood so uh, it's still very much following that pattern that developed in the middle or late first century paul may have left his books and parchments at troas so that the church scribes there could make copies of some of his exemplars or master copies Lee Woodard, in his work on Codex W, which is a manuscript containing the four Gospels and supposedly dates to the first century, which is phenomenal, uh, he has suggested that the Washington Codex is a good example of what a first century collection of canonical Gospels might have looked like. He says this Codex W has a pile of parchment sheets bound together like a book between two wooden covers. And we know from classical Greek and Latin studies that codex collections like this were appearing on the literary scene no later than the mid-80s of the first century. Trobish, in his book uh, that we mentioned last time, has suggested that the New Testament documents were collected in three codices, one for the four Gospels, one for Paul's 14 epistles, and a third codex for Acts and the general epistles and the Apocalypse. And what is interesting, Trobisch uh, makes the note that as far back as we have codex collections, we find this very kind of arrangement. We find three codexes, three books, to house all 27 of the New Testament documents. And Trobisch also notes that in all extant complete collections of Paul's writings in codex form, the book of Hebrews was always included. There's not a single exception. In every complete collection of Paul's writings in codex form, the book of Hebrews was included in his writings. Trobesh has suggested that this triple codex arrangement of the New Testament books may have followed the pattern set by the original apostolic collections of Peter and Paul. The codex, or bound volume, was much easier to handle on trips like the Apostle Paul had to take. And we can see why, because scrolls were very easily damaged and not easy to travel with. So the Codex was a much safer way to bring a bunch of manuscripts around with you. 
Christians may not have been the first ones to use the codex, but they were certainly the most prolific users of that format. This makes Apostle Paul's casual reference to his collection of books and parchments in 2 Timothy 4.13 very, very interesting. Luke states at the beginning of his gospel that many have undertaken to compile an account, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and following. He says he researched those other accounts carefully and wrote it down in consecutive order so that Theophilus could know the exact truth about all these things. So Luke was not only aware of those other accounts of the gospel, but had carefully researched them as he was writing his own account. So he had access to them for a significant period of time while he was writing his own gospel. Where did he do that research? Who had copies of those other gospels for him to look at? And where did he get these documents to look at, these other gospels that he looked at in order to to write his own gospel of Luke? Well, I believe that he did that research at the church in Jerusalem. And the reason I say that is because he was in the area of Jerusalem for two years while Paul was in prison at Caesarea. After Paul was arrested in Acts chapter 21, it says that he was transferred over to Caesarea, and there he remained for two years before he was sent to Rome for trial. And during that two years, Luke would have had free passage back and forth between Paul in Caesarea and the church in Jerusalem. That would have been plenty of time to do his research in preparation for going to Rome and write the Gospel of Luke as well as the, uh, the book of Acts. Any defense attorney for Apostle Paul would have needed the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to help prepare him to defend Paul in the Roman court. So uh, that's one of the theories that, that the book of Luke and Acts were written for Paul's defense attorney so that he would know how to defend Paul when they got to Rome. I believe Luke did that research at Jerusalem where he had access to the apostles and to the writings of the apostles, especially Matthew and Mark, who were written before Luke did his writing. When Peter wrote his second epistle, he showed that he was not only aware that Paul had written a number of epistles, but that he had copies of all of them and had read them and was here stating his approval of them. Listen to these words, and this is something we want to parse. I mean, we want to take this apart and look at it real carefully because out of all the text I've ever read in the New Testament related to the canon of Scripture, this is probably the most pregnant with meaning and fascinating evidence. Listen to what Peter says here. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, you've noticed I emphasized four different phrases there in this text, and I want to look at those four phrases. Four things we need to be careful to notice here. 
Peter refers to Paul in what I call and what commentators call post-mortem eulogistic style. He says, our beloved brother Paul. How many of you have heard that expression at a funeral? Our beloved brother has passed on. These words are used typically of, of someone who has passed on from the earthly scene. Peter probably would have not referred to Paul that way if Paul was still alive. And the reason I would say that is because we have two more indications in this same two verses that Paul was, in fact, already gone. And we'll look at those. Not only the our beloved brother Paul, but notice he says in past tense, Paul wrote to you, past tense. Paul is not still writing to them. He wrote to them in past tense. That implies that he's no longer still alive. He's no longer writing to them, present tense. He wrote to them in the past. And then thirdly, he mentions all his letters. Now, he couldn't make that statement if Paul was still alive, still writing, because he wouldn't have all his letters. He'd only have some of his letters, the, the letters that he had written to that point. Peter says, all his letters. He wrote to you past tense in all his letters. That tells us that Peter had a complete collection of all of Paul's letters. Paul had already died in the persecution. And Peter, in this same letter, says that he knows his departure is at hand as well. And he's writing in 64 A.D., just as the Neuronic persecution was underway. That's the point I think that Peter's making here, is that our beloved brother Paul, is he's using that eulogistic uh, phrase in reference to Paul, because Paul is already dead, and Paul is no longer writing to them. He wrote to you past tense, and Peter has a complete collection of all his letters. Now, that's fascinating. You know, why don't we find Mark or Matthew or somebody else saying that? Why is it Peter who has this complete collection? That tells us something. Peter is in Jerusalem. Peter was committed to staying in Jerusalem and preaching and giving testimony about Jesus to his dying day. I mean, he was, he was absolutely committed to that. And one of the things that he was given was the keys of the kingdom, as we talked about last time, and the authority to bind and loose. And so it's not surprising, at least it shouldn't be surprising to us, that he was keeping track of every letter Paul wrote. We saw in Acts chapter 15, we saw in Acts chapter 21, and other places in the book of Acts where Paul presented his gospel to the elders and apostles in Jerusalem to make sure that what he was teaching was bound and loosed by Peter and the other apostles. And sure enough, it was. Uh, on numerous occasions, Paul's gospel preaching was affirmed by Peter and the rest of the apostles. So it's not surprising to see them keeping a complete collection of all of Paul's writings. And you know that the other apostolic writings, such as Matthew and Mark and the Gospel of John and all of John's writings, including the book of Revelation and James' writing and Peter's epistles himself, uh, you know all of those were already in Jerusalem because the people who wrote them were there. The only exception would be the book of Revelation, which was written by John on the island of Patmos, Evidently, some courier went to Patmos and retrieved the book of Revelation and brought it back to Peter in Jerusalem. And from there, it was uh, copied and circulated among all the churches. 
So Jerusalem is the key church that had a complete collection of all these writings. They had a collection of Paul's writings. Peter says that right here. He says, we have all of his letters. And not only do we have them all, but he says, notice the fourth thing that we emphasized when we read that text. He says that these things that Paul has written are hard to understand, true, but they are just as important as the rest of the scriptures. Peter considered Paul's writings, every one of them, as on a same level playing field as the rest of the scriptures. He canonized Paul's writings right there in that statement. Now, he doesn't use the word canon, but he compares them to scripture. That's the way you say something is canonical, is by saying that it's scripture, and Peter does that. So all 14 of Paul's epistles are canonical right there. Peter puts his stamp of approval on them. He uses his keys of the kingdom, his binding and loosing authority, to pronounce the whole collection of Paul's letters as canonical. So the point we want to stress about 2 Timothy 4.13 and 2 Peter 3.15 and 16 is that both Paul and Peter clearly have access to a collection of New Testament documents. Tradition states that Peter had read Matthew's Gospel and found it lacking some of the details that he remembered about Christ, so he allowed Mark to write an account which included those details and perspectives of Peter. And John supposedly remembered some other details about Christ that the other three Gospels did not include, such as the ministry of Jesus before John the Baptist was arrested, and he included those materials in his gospel for the benefit of the church. Peter, Mark, John did this writing in Jerusalem, and the church there would have had a collection of all these writings for other Christians to copy from. Luke would have had access to the Jerusalem collection during the two years that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea before they were taken to Rome. That would have been a perfect opportunity for Luke to access the Jerusalem collection of gospel accounts. And it would have been the perfect time for the Jerusalem church to make copies of all of Paul's epistles as well. So those two years that Paul spent in Caesarea waiting to be sent to Rome may have been a very providential time for the writing and collection of the New Testament books by the Jerusalem church under the leadership of Apostle Peter. So it's essential to the theory of apostolic canonization for the Jerusalem church, and Peter especially, to have in his possession a complete collection of apostolic writings before AD 70. By studying the book of Acts and Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles, as we've done in this study, it's easy to see that was the case. Peter had copies, evidently, of all 27 books by the time he passed on in the Neuronic persecution. And if he did have all copies of those 27 books, then we can be sure that the Jerusalem church was aware of them and had access to them as well. It is known that Paul and Luke came to Jerusalem for several of the feasts during their missionary journeys, and they brought Gentile contributions for the poor there several times. And it was during those times when these books would have been available to them to make their own copies and to acquire copies and to give their manuscripts to them uh, in Jerusalem for them to copy as well. So I think that's an easy way to explain how these writings were collected and how they were circulated by the apostles on their missionary journeys. 
and by special couriers like Mark, who would have taken those books with him on his uh, trips throughout the Roman Empire. Now, we don't know how extensive Paul's collection of writings were, but we can assume that he knew of all the books that Peter had, and that he probably obtained copies of all of them as soon as he visited Jerusalem, and then took them with him on his next missionary journey. When Luke wrote his gospel account, he states that he had access to at least two other gospel accounts. Peter's base of operations was obviously Jerusalem, and that's where his two epistles were written from. The epistle of Jude was evidently written about the same time as Peter's second epistle. The remarkable similarities between Jude and Second Peter suggest that both epistles were written in Jerusalem at about the same time. Both Matthew and Mark's gospels were also written in Jerusalem. John's gospel and three epistles were written in Jerusalem, as was the epistle of James. From Second Peter 3, 15 and 16, it seems clear that Peter, in Jerusalem, had access to the whole corpus of Paul's 14 epistles. And as we noted above, Luke and Acts had been written while Paul was in prison. That leaves only one book, the book of Revelation, written on Patmos in AD 62 or 63. Noting the reference to Babylon in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, some have suggested that Peter may have had access to the book of Revelation even before he wrote his first epistle in late AD 63 or 64. If that was the case... Peter had access to all 27 New Testament books before he was martyred in the Neronic persecution in AD 64 or early 65. The book of Jude, written about the same time as Second Peter, even states that the system of faith chronicled in New Testament had already been once for all delivered to the saints. Thus, the work of the paraclete as described in John 14 through 16 was finished. In order for Jude to make such an absolute statement, he would have needed to have access to a complete collection of New Testament books in Jerusalem, and also to have known that the collection was complete because all the inspired writers were either dead or were about to be killed in the Neuronic persecution, and therefore no more books would be written after that. So it seems that all 27 New Testament books were in circulation and available as a complete collection in Jerusalem before A.D. 70. I am not saying that all the churches throughout the Roman Empire had a complete collection of all 27 books, nor am I saying that there were very many churches which had copies of all 27 books. Jerusalem did. Antioch may have as well and maybe a few others. That is not necessary, however, to the thesis of apostolic canonization. All that is necessary to this theory is that Peter and the other apostles and the Jerusalem church had copies of all 27 books, and that Peter and the other apostles gave their approval of them before they passed from the earthly scene by AD 70. That much seems to be indicated by the statements of Peter and Paul that we have looked at in this lesson. This idea has been labeled apostolic canonization, a very conservative and preterist approach to the New Testament canon, which needs and deserves broad consideration from the conservative Christian community. Now, if any of our listeners want a uh, more detailed explanation of all this, I would recommend they get my uh, my book, First Century Events, 
Uh, it's available at our website uh, where I spell all this out. I show when those books were written, the circumstances under which they were written, and uh, put them in sequence so that you can see which ones were first written, which ones were last written, and so on. Very, very important study, and that's called First Century Events, and you can get it from our website, www.preterist.org. For this lesson, I've drawn material from two of my uh, previous articles and publications, uh, and I'll be glad to send both of those articles and series of articles to any of our listeners if they want to. Just email me at preterist1 at preterist.org, and I'll send you those two documents. Uh, just request the two PDFs dealing with apostolic canonization, and I'll send those two documents to you. Next week, we'll conclude this series on apostolic canonization by looking at Peter's role in certifying all of these books as authoritative and inspired before he died. All right, so that pretty well wraps it up. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. 